everyone. My name is Heather Young. I am an assistant professor of pediatric infectious disease here at Arkansas Children's Hospital, and I'm a member of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society Education Committee. And today we are here doing a podcast talking about the very new guidelines for treatment of acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. And we are here today with two of my esteemed colleagues. First, we have Dr. Sandra Arnold. She is a professor at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Pediatric Infectious Disease. She is actually the, the division chief, and she is also the uh, medical co-director of antimicrobial stewardship. So we're very happy to have her with us. And then we also have Dr. Boots Cronman, who is an associate professor at Seattle Children's Hospital. He is also the associate medical director of infection prevention and medical director of outpatient stewardship. So, Dr. Arnold, you know, we have been waiting for several years for these guidelines, and I was wondering if you could summarize for us what are really the highlights of these guidelines and what all do they encompass? So, thank you so much for that introduction, and we're both really excited to be here. Uh, I'm just going to provide a quick summary of the content of the guidelines, and then we'll dive into some um, more detailed discussion of specific points. So the guideline provides a summary of recommendations for both the diagnosis and the management of acute hematogenous osteomyelitis in children. So the focus is on healthy children one month to under 18 years with hematogenous osteomyelitis caused by typical bacteria, typical bacteria meaning uh, Staph aureus, Streptococci, Salmonella, Kingella bacteria like that. Bacterial arthritis will be discussed separately in a separate guideline which is um, still being worked on and should be released soon. There are three sections dedicated to the diagnosis of hematogenous osteomyelitis and also testing to elucidate the etiology of infection. Recommendations are also made around non-invasive diagnostic testing such as blood tests and diagnostic imaging as well as invasive procedures to obtain specimens for microbiologic studies, including bone aspirate or biopsy, or tissue aspirate or biopsy, and specimens from purulent collections. The section on management addresses timing of initiation and choice of antibiotic therapy, surgical management, choice of definitive therapy, assessing response to therapy, discharge timing, transition to oral therapy, and total duration of therapy. There's also a section on long-term follow-up. And so, as you can see, we really run the gamut all the way from the uh, first clinical presentation all the way up to the end of therapy and then long-term follow-up of children who have suffered from this infection. For then, Dr. Cronman, um, in your opinion, what is the most important aspect of this updated guideline? Yeah, thank you. And first, of course, thanks for having me and happy to be here and to see you all today. Um, and... Thanks, Dr. Arnold, for that high-level overview. I guess I would highlight four things, and I'm curious if Dr. Arnold would, uh, would agree or what she would add here. But first, I think the most important thing about the guidelines is that they exist now. Um, you know, Dr. Young, as you said, these are long-awaited, and uh, I really think finally having these gives us a place to start in terms of beginning to standardize care and identify best practices and keep getting better over time. So simply existing is, is a huge win. Um, 
But in terms of the other three concrete recommendations within the guideline, uh, I would say first that uh, the recommendation to obtain diagnostic specimens is important to me. I think it helps us identify the causative agent, um, and that will help us continue to understand the microbiology of acute hematogenous osteo over time. So that's pretty important. Secondly, um, as has been shown, there's been great variability in terms of whether kids get transitioned from IV therapy to oral therapy when they're leaving the hospital. First, um, you know, shown by Theo Zayudis, I think it was 2009, in a pediatrics paper. And the recommendation in the guidelines now to transition most kids to oral therapy at the time of discharge um, is an important one to me. I think it is the the right choice uh, microbiologically, pharmacokinetically, um, in terms of side effects from a stewardship perspective. So that's a, a key finding here, uh, or recommendation, I should say. And then um, thirdly, the recommendation to try and uh, keep the duration of therapy to three to four weeks uh, in general as, as the sort of minimum. Um, over time, there seems to have been this creep from, oh, kids need to be treated for three weeks up to, well, you know, let's do four. Well, let's do four to six. Um, and I think we really can rein that in a little bit and keep it closer to three to four weeks for children with uncomplicated acute hematogenous osteo. And so that may spare a few weeks worth of therapy, which may not sound like much, but certainly is a lot if someone's being woken up to, you know, receive cephalexin every six hours or every eight hours. So um, I think that's an important recommendation here too. Those are the ones I would highlight. That's awesome. Um, Dr. Arnold, do you have anything that you'd want to add to that? Well, I did. I only wrote down two, but I really liked the first one about the fact that we have these guidelines. And I think it's incredibly important to um, standardize care of these kids because there is a huge amount of variation. But the two that I did choose and the one that I thought was the most important was the transition to oral antibiotics. I remember when we first started using PICC lines and where I trained, we always used oral transition and we did not increase our use of PICC lines in osteomyelitis patients, which I was really pleased about. And then when I came to Le Bonheur, I was very happy to find myself among um, a group of people who considered oral transition to be the standard of care. But a lot of places when PICC lines became available and you didn't have to put a Broviac into a subclavian um, vein anymore, they said, oh, we can just treat everybody with IV antibiotics and then we don't have to worry. But as we know, especially from Theo's paper, which confirmed what we all knew, which is that pick lines are a pain and you don't want to send children home with a pick line. I wouldn't want to take my own child home with a pick line unless it were absolutely necessary. Um, so I think I was really pleased that we were all on the same page and felt that this was um, a really important thing to put, to put in the guideline. And then my second choice um, after that was certainly the limiting duration of therapy. I think we've seen duration of therapy creep for sure, especially with MRSA because the infections can be really severe and patients might require multiple visits to the operating room that I myself have been guilty of prolonging therapy uh, up to six weeks on occasion, hopefully appropriately. But actually, since working on this guideline, I personally have been working on getting my durations of therapy down to three to four weeks. Same for me. <laughs> I think there will be many parents who will be very happy to know that instead of potentially six weeks to go to three to four weeks. I mean, that two, that extra two weeks, just with the strain of already having a significantly ill child, that's going to 
be a little a mental load off of some of these parents to have a little bit shorter duration. All right, so next I was going to ask Dr. Arnold if you wanted to discuss the importance of non-therapeutic tissue diagnoses, including blood cultures in these children and the importance of getting those. Absolutely. Um, there's a lengthy discussion of non-invasive diagnostic testing for osteomyelitis, including uh, lab testing that can help confirm or refute the diagnosis, such as inflammatory markers and CBC. So spoiler alert, we are not giving you information on a te one test that is going to have sufficient accuracy to rule in or rule out osteomyelitis that does not exist. The question at hand, however, focuses on etiologic diagnosis of osteomyelitis with blood culture um, or bone and tissue cultures purely for diagnostic purposes. So um, as Boots said a few minutes ago, one of the important things um, in this guideline is getting people to get uh, sample so that you can confirm a microbiologic diagnosis. And this is really important because this allows optimization of the spectrum and duration of therapy. There's some data to support that children with culture negative osteomyelitis, for example, get treated for longer. And again, if we want to keep those lengths of therapy down, this is going to go a long way to helping that. So for blood cultures, um, there were two published meta-analyses and then a meta-analysis that was performed um, purely for this guideline, and that one included studies from 2005 to 2019. And across these studies, there was a range of blood culture positivity from about 30 to 40 percent, some higher, more in the 50 percent range, some a bit lower in the 20s. Blood culture is so simple and easy to obtain and can allow identification of the etiology within 24 hours without invasive diagnostic sampling, so you don't need a sedated procedure. So the committee was pretty unanimous on recommending obtaining a blood culture prior to initiation of antibiotic therapy in all patients, even though some patients will have negative blood cultures, um, because the preponderance of benefit is there and there's limited harm. We're all pretty good at identifying when somebody has a contaminated blood culture, and that's the main downside of getting a blood culture on every patient. And most blood cultures will yield pathogens that are relatively easy to grow in our blood culture systems, the typical pathogens um, that this guideline refers to except for Kingella, which is one that won't grow in blood cultures. Um, and so for something like that, or in a patient who has a negative blood culture or in whom you're worried they will have a negative blood culture, invasive procedures to obtain bone or pus specimens for diagnosis, not for therapeutic purposes, we're not talking about going in and doing an IND um, to drain out a large collection of pus to aid in recovery, but more just to identify the etiologic agent, has been made a conditional recommendation, which means that the decision that the, uh, that the group thought that this was um, a reasonable thing to do, but is influenced by other factors such as feasibility and patient factors, and obviously the result of your blood culture. So you don't need to do this if you have a positive blood culture. But studies of bone and tissue culture have been done, and there certainly seems to be an added value beyond blood culture to doing cultures of the local site of infection. So um, the meta-analysis of studies that looked at the additive effect of 
bone or tissue culture on top of blood culture increase the yield of an etiologic agent from 33% to 55%. A separate meta-analysis just looking at the overall yield, so a different set of studies, which is why there's a different number, yielded um, an etiologic agent from 65%. So this shows that bone or tissue aspirate really will increase the likelihood of identifying a pathogen and identify, identifying that pathogen can simplify treatments by increasing the confidence in the decisions made for both the empiric and definitive oral therapy and, excuse me, for both the IV and the oral antibiotics that are given. Hopefully this will drive shorter durations of therapy overall and will also help drive that oral transition that we are um, pushing quite hard on in this document. I agree with all of that. <clears throat> and the, the fact that rates of contaminant blood cultures are about 2% should really make us feel comfortable that getting a blood culture in every one of these children will not add to diagnostic uncertainty too much uh, as we try to sort uh, out whether the, the positive blood culture represents a contaminant or a true pathogen, especially because most of the time um, organisms that would be a contaminant would not be a cause of acute hematogenous osteo. So uh, they can be pretty easy to, to separate out. Awesome. Yeah, in your discussion of whether or not to go in and get pus or bone from a locally affected area, it just reminds me so much. One of my mentors in fellowship, um, Dr. Jeffrey Stark, would always say, you got to go where the money is. You just got to go where the money is. And that, that, that's exactly, exactly, exactly. So, Dr. Kronman, do you mind answering, um, how long would you be comfortable after working on these guidelines with waiting to initiate antibiotics in a well-appearing child with osteomyelitis with a planned bone biopsy or surgery? Yeah, of course. And I'll tell you, we wrestled with this one um, for two main reasons. Um, first, we recognized that we were there are a lot of children in this country, and their access to care can be quite variable. If you're in a rural area very far from a pediatric orthopedic specialist, um, who could you know, appropriately perform that procedure, uh, your, the time you might be willing to wait would be different than if you were in a, a major metropolitan area with hundreds of uh, pediatric orthopedists around. So, uh, and that was the first thing that made it complicated. And the second was that there are no great data. It's not like we've done randomized trials where we just let a child where we think they have acute hematogenous osteo sit there, uh, you know, waiting and then do the, uh, the procedure later um, off antibiotics. That just hasn't happened. So a lot of this is, you know, falls more unfortunately into that group of expert opinion. But where we landed was that we didn't want any child to wait longer than 48 to 72 hours. Um, certainly for those with more complicated disease, septic appearing, um, you know, needing vasoactive medications and so on, they, we wouldn't want them to wait nearly as long as even 48 hours. Uh, but for the well-appearing child where there's a high suspicion of acute hematogenous osteo, um, and if you think there's a, a high likelihood that a procedure could happen to identify the organism, as Dr. Arnold was saying, um, in the next, say, 48 hours, it's reasonable to wait off of antibiotics and, and watch them like a hawk to see if they begin to become more septic appearing and, and unstable. Uh, Dr. Arnold, do you agree? Or I assume that you do, but is, do you have Absolutely. other points you'd like to be laying up? Yeah. 
I think the thing we wrestled with the most was how long was okay to wait, not whether or not we should wait. So I think most people feel, especially in the hemodynamically stable child, which is a lot of these kids, they come in with fever and pain, but most of them are not that sick. And a lot of the, they're not as sick as they were in the early 2000s when we first started seeing MRSA. So I think, and that, and therefore fewer of them have abscesses that require drainage. I mean, we're, we're kind of getting back to where we were before 2000, where this was a medical disease where we all, everybody just got cefazolin and got better. But of course, we have the issue of antibiotic resistance. And we've all struggled with what the best way to treat a child is where we don't have an organism. And so optimizing uh, our diagnostic studies is really important. And we all know that antibiotics do tend to sterilize cultures. So I think it was really more just the wording and making sure that we um, made it clear that if you were worried about the child at all, do not wait to start antibiotics because we can always figure it out. It's just, it's just more difficult. Right. We can easily, if we have culture negative things, we can give us our, our best guesses based on our local resistance patterns and the like. So, and that is easier doing than um, having the, the morbidity that would come from a child who had delayed treatment of sepsis. So awesome. Going with that. So if you have that sick child, Dr. Arnold, that you're, it's going to take a while before you can get a bone biopsy or before they can get an IND. What would be your preferred empiric treatment for osteomyelitis? Right. So the main recommendation is, is that every child with hematogenous osteomyelitis has to be empirically treated for staph aureus, and that is the bottom line. The question of whether you treat for MRSA as well, so some places don't have very much MRSA, and so one of the things we did struggle with, and the same thing goes for clindamycin when you're thinking about managing MRSA, do you give empiric vancomycin or do, do you give clindamycin, is at what level of resistance to the drug. So for, you know, for MSSA, it's whether you have resistance to antistaphylococcal penicillins, or if you're thinking about MRSA and giving clindamycin, um, at what level of resistance do you need to start thinking about not using that class of drugs? And that's actually something we faced here because we started seeing a lot of MRSA um, in 2001. And we got up to a point where 75% of our isolates were MRSA. So it was actually really easy to decide that we had to empirically treat MRSA, which I had never seen before I moved here. And that was great. And we had clindamycin and we had 98% susceptibility. So everybody got clindamycin. Some patients who were really sick got vancomycin as well or in place of. But now we have 20 to 25% clindamycin resistance, and that's 20 years of steady clindamycin use. And so the committee decided that somewhere in the 10 to 20 percent-ish range, again, purely based on expert opinion, because there are no studies, um, would be a reasonable place to say if you have 10 to 20 percent MRSA in your community, you should strongly consider covering MRSA with your empiric therapy. If you have 10 to 20 percent clindamycin resistance, the same issue, you should probably be using vancomycin. The caveat to that is if you have a rock stable child, you know, we love using clindamycin because it's safer than vancomycin. We don't have to worry about levels and are we giving them enough and pushing the levels up high and then causing nephrotoxicity. And it's an easy oral transition. So if you have a really stable child, 
and I still do this here, I did it last week, um, I will still give them clindamycin and then monitor them clinically to see if they respond. Obviously, if we don't see a response within a couple of days, an improvement, and we don't have positive cultures to help guide that therapy, that's when you have to start thinking about changing therapy. But we chose that fairly broad range of 10 to 20 percent to give people wiggle room. But even if it's a bit above that, I still think it's reasonable to initiate therapy with either uh, cefazolin or a semi-synthetic penicillin for MSSA or clindamycin if you're thinking about MRSA as long as you can monitor the patient really closely. Then based on their epidemiology and clinical presentation, you might cover other organisms as well. A less than three-month-old, you want to make sure you're covering group B strep. You have a patient who maybe has um, a sandpapery rash that you're worried about, group A strep. I saw a lot of group A strep osteo in my training. You kind of got to recognize what it looked like, or a sickle cell patient. You would want to cover for salmonella, but Staph aureus is, um, needs to be covered in everybody. I just was going to add, when we think about that question, what is the rate of clindamycin resistance in our community? Are we in that 10 to 20% range? Are we higher? Uh, we turn to our local antibiogram. And I just was going to make the point that um, it's important to remember the local antibiogram does overrepresent resistant samples. If there's a child who has an acute osteo due to MSSA and they're empirically put on cefazolin and they get better, they may not get the chance to contribute an isolate. Whereas the child with MRSA who's put empirically on cefazolin doesn't get better, maybe gets a sample and contributes a sample to that uh, numerator and denominator on the antibiogram. And so um, first, just remember that your antibiogram might overrepresent resistance. And secondly, if possible, locally, um, some places are able to stratify their antibiogram by type of sample, whether it's tissue or even from a patient population, and that would be ideal. So then if you could say, oh, we know for sure that among our pediatric osteomyelitis patients, our rate of clindamycin resistance is 30% among our staph aureus. Yeah, okay, I guess we better use something other than clindamycin. Um, so getting down to what is that number for our community can actually be pretty tricky. That's a great point. Yes. Yes, indeed. Right, so then the next question um, is how long do you treat with IV therapy before you switch to oral, Dr. Cronman? And see, I think Dr. Arnold had all the hard questions. <laughs> you know, this one is hard only in the sense that we're like, well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, by which I mean that the data we have are retrospective cohort studies. And uh, each of these studies used a different metric. Uh, some said, okay, well, we'll wait till the CRP falls to between two and four. Some said, well, we'll wait till it's 50% of the peak. Some said, we'll do it for two to four days. Some said, we'll do it for seven days. Some said, we'll do IV until discharge and then switch whenever discharge is, is uh, ready. So there's not been one unifying uh, line in the sand to say, here's the best way to decide when to switch from IV to oral. Um, and I think we reflect that in the guideline with what we provide in terms of guidance. I think the, the more important point is, please transition to oral before discharge or at the time of discharge. But, you know, whether that's at three days or five days, it's hard to say, um, thinking from a, a limbo uh, mindset, how low can we go? What's the lowest amount of IV? I don't think we know that yet. Um, but I think we do know that it is uh, lower than the full three to four weeks. Um, 
So I wish we had a better uh, concrete answer to that question, Dr. Young. And, and I think that with this guideline, hopefully we can begin generating those data to identify the best transition point. Um, how low can we go in the future? I think it's important. It's one of those things that is hard to almost put into words because we all know it when we see it. You know, one day you walk in the room and you look at the child and you go, oh, you're ready to go home today <laughs> because they're sitting up and they're chowing down on their breakfast and they're feeling a whole lot better. And that, in some kids that happens gradually. And in some, they go one day from feeling terrible to the next day feeling great. And I sort of describe instead of, I've never used a particular cut point for CRP. I usually say when the CRP falls off the cliff, because it can just sort of, it can sort of drift down for a bit and then it goes, and that's, when they're clearly getting better, but it's also usually the same time that they're feeling better, or they're starting to get up and move around. The moving around and using their limb can be difficult, especially if they've had surgery. So back when I trained before, we had to operate on every kid with osteomyelitis, and we gave them cefazolam for two or three days and then sent them home to finish three weeks of Keflex. It was really easy to tell because they got up and started walking around. It can be a little more difficult in the days now that more children are having their bones drilled and their periosteum in size but even so it's still a really big part of it so i think you know everybody kind of has to develop their own way of telling but like i said you know it when you see it and it's different for every child and i, I think and this is entirely personal experience and, and not from the guideline but i think the opposite of what dr arnold is describing is the child who remains on the mesa you know stays on that <laughs> plateau and does not ever fall off the exactly. cliff um those children where their their symptoms are about the same, their CRP is about the same for a number of days in a row, those are the ones where uh, I've worried about and certainly at times found uh, sequestrum or, you know, some other walled off abscess that ultimately required a, either a first or a second procedure for drainage. And um, so that's the opposite of what we're looking for is someone who's just stuck uh, is how we often refer to them here. Oh, that that poor kid seems stuck. Let's, let's, you know, repeat the MRI. Yeah. No, the importance of source control as well. Sometimes I think that's mentioned very well exactly. in the guidelines that sometimes if you think your, your therapy's failing, is it really that you, you need to achieve good source control? So, yeah. um, completely agree with you there. And I do, I haven't used the phrase stuck before, but I think I'm going to incorporate that now. Um, please do. Yes. <laughs> Feel free. It's all yours. Yeah. And your point about source control is, you know, we had a surgeon on the guideline committee, which was incredibly important because, you know, we're never in the OR looking and seeing what's there. And um, it was just really great to have somebody who had that that perspective uh, to help support a lot of the things that we were saying that sometimes we um, get into conflict with our surgeons over. Um, so that was very helpful. And I think a lot of that information comes from him. Dr. Copley. Well, I'm, it did, when I, when I was looking at these guidelines, seeing the multidisciplinary aspect of these guidelines, it, it, it really heartened me a bit that like, all right, this is something that I can also take to my orthopedic surgeons and, and something that they can feel like that there, there was some of their society's buy-in as well. I think that will help I mean, it's an interdisciplinary field in general as well. I mean, there's the pediatric hospitalists, et cetera, that we have these guidelines that we can all share amongst each other. I think that's excellent and that there's buy-in from all of these different specialties into it. 
So kind of summing up, is there any last things that you all have to say or anything other than for me, I'm just very happy that they're here. I think that's what I was going to say. It's, I don't remember the gestation period of elephants or whales or other gigantic mammals, but it, it's at least this long. And yes, yeah, so I think we're all, we're all ready for, uh, for these to be born and, and then we can um, fix them. You know, I'm sure they're not perfect and I'm sure we'll identify issues that need to change and we won't find them until we start using them and, and trying to, to figure out what they are. I completely agree. Just happy that it's going to be out there. Um, I think it's really important that people remember they are just guidelines and we tried to base it as much on evidence as possible, but we also also knew going in that there wasn't going to be, you know, there weren't going to be 20 RCTs to support uh, the questions that we had. And so people have to recognize that there's a lot of nuance to this and a lot of expert opinion. It's a large group of experts from all across the country. So that's really good. And Canada, where I'm from originally. So we have Canadians and Americans and so and surgeons. And, and I think it's been a really great experience for all of us. But remember, if you want to do something that's not really outlined in the guideline, that's also okay that we all make individual clinical decisions for our patients every day. And not every child reads the textbook, right? So certainly not. Sometimes you have to adjust for the child. So exactly. Well, thank you all very much. Hopefully, we'll be speaking again soon. Looking forward Talk to talk about Thanks. septic arthritis. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Thanks for having us. Kind of similar. <laughs> very similar.